The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hello, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. Today, we're going to speak about the power of play. A recent article appearing in Pediatrics, the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, urged pediatricians to write a prescription for play at well-baby and well-child visits. What is so important about play to warrant this recommendation? Here to answer that question and much more is our guest, is our guest Dr. Michael Yogman the first author of that article. Dr. Yogman is a pediatrician in practice in Cambridge, Mass., the chief of the Division of Ambulatory Pediatrics at Mount Auburn Hospital at Harvard Medical School. He's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and chair of the National American Academy of Pediatrics on the Committee for Psychosocial Aspects of Child and Family Health. He's been a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics since 1973. He's edited several books, including In Support of Families, Affective Development, and a series entitled Theory and Research in Behavioral Pediatrics. He's the recipient of many awards. Dr. Yogman, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Dr. Yogman, why is play so important? Well, I'll give you three reasons. Uh, number one, um, in contrast to uh, what people may think, that it's just uh, fun and frivolous, it actually play with caregivers, peers, and teachers is brain building. It enhances brain structure and function. That's the first thing. The second point is that playful learning is really a fundamental, fundamental part of healthy development and is crucial for 21st century skills such as executive function, collaboration, and innovation. And finally, I think play is really a vehicle for improving parents' relationship with their children. It helps to build the safe, nurturing relationships with all caregivers that mitigate stress and promote resilience. So I think all three things uh, sum together uh, to argue that we really need to uh, value play more than perhaps we have been in the last few years. So you're suggesting that play is more valuable to a child's future learning capacity and, as you say, brain function than starting children with early academics? Well, what we're looking for is a balance. I think... Uh, Children need to develop a variety of skill sets. And uh, uh, my concern is that if they're focused from a very young age on uh, uh, structured activities, on test-taking, on uh, academic readiness, 
without the opportunity to experiment and to tinker and to let them find their way, I think we're, uh, we're ignoring some of the important uh, aspects of whole child learning that uh, are critical and will uh, actually develop adult skills that they will need. I loved one of the studies mentioned in the article where they said a group of children was put in a room with different objects and just allowed to self-direct themselves and play with them. And another group was with the teacher who was describing them. And then when they asked each group for the different creative functions of those objects, the children who had been in the room alone, self-directed, going through and playing with them, actually had more creative answers than the children who had just been instructed on those objects by a teacher. I thought that that really speaks to this a bit. Absolutely. I think there, there are several studies along those lines, and I think if we're too directive in uh, showing children the, uh, uh, the kinds of things that... Uh, occur during play, they'll lose interest. They really want to be little scientists. They want to discover things on their own. And our goal is to help them when they're stuck, which is called scaffolding, but not to be so intrusive that we rob them of the excitement of that scientific endeavor, that joy of discovery. It's so fundamental to play. Well, since you mentioned it, let's share with our listeners what do you mean by scaffolding? Because people may be doing it or they may be mystified, but tell us a bit about scaffolding with parent-child play. Well, it's a very important concept so that uh, uh, it's timing. It's all about timing so that when children are struggling with a puzzle, for example, um, and starting to get frustrated, that's a time when parents can, can intervene and provide a little guidance and direction to help children get over a hurdle. Um, mm-hmm. That's very different than taking over and showing them every step of the way. So scaffolding is being there at the right time in the right place uh, to facilitate the child's discovery, but not to uh, circumvent it or interfere with it. Yes, I, I like what it said. These are activities that would take a child much longer to learn on them on their on their own, and I and in fact maybe they would get frustrated and put it down. So I was thinking about even baking with children, and they might want to fill the cupcake papers. And just saying, hey, if you just hold that spoon a little bit more, I think it's going to go in the paper and not on the counter. And so as you're suggesting and what what you write about in the article is the little bit of guidance drops the frustration and the next time you're baking or the next time you're doing the puzzle, having seen this happen, it's really extraordinary how much better the child is able to do it. It yeah, makes absolutely, a and I think the, uh, the, there's no one size fits all. So some children uh, will be frustrated uh, earlier on mm-hmm. on a uh, task, and others uh, one wants to back off and let them really work at it for a bit uh, before they show signs of frustration. One of the things I'm glad we're talking about scaffolding is because I wanted our listeners to know what might seem to you small in your interactions with children 
is actually big. So if you did it and you didn't even think like, well, what's the big deal? I helped him with the puzzle. I helped her with him or her with the baking. Actually, the consistent scaffolding, being there here and there to do these things from what the article is saying, really enhances a child's learning as well as the relationship with that parent. Yeah, let me give you a, a very early example that I think is uh, uh, really fundamental. Three-month-olds begin to smile and coo, and uh, that's a marvelous opportunity for mothers as well as fathers uh, to mimic those uh, uh, serve-and-return interactions. So the child makes a vocalization and the parent mimics it, and they go back and forth for a few minutes, and then there's a pause while the child rests. And the parent has to respect that pause. That's a bit of scaffolding. And then the child may pick up again. And to the degree that they go back and forth, the child, the infant, the three-month-old, is learning about taking turns. That is the basis of the pragmatics of language development later on. And these serve-and-return interactions that occur at that very early age are really important for giving the child a sense that what they do matters in terms of the responses of their environment. And, and I love you mentioned the attunement to when the child stops to kind of regroup, to wait it out. I, I, I have made that mistake often in, in, with my own children, and we're so eager to do it, we're not waiting, but that, that waiting and letting the child set the pace is, is so important, isn't it? Well, and that's certainly a good example of why I think play is so supportive of enhancing the parent-child relationship so that it gives parents a chance to uh, focus on the nonverbal behavior that their uh, uh, children are displaying. When they're playing with an object, they are doing all kinds of interesting activities, uh, visual, tactile, that parents can tune in on and observe uh, and learn really about what their... uh, uh, children are thinking about as they're discovering an object. Which is, I, I have a little grandson who loves rocks, and that's what came to mind when I read that part, that this little guy will pick up a rock at his three and say, look at this rock. And if you just stay, it's like being mindful, if you stay in the moment, you can watch and see, and your presence is not nothing. It's actually enhancing because you can, you know, corroborate what he sees or ask to hold it. So that object play that you have an opportunity to observe and participate in is really valuable from what you're saying. It's affirming his discovery as he turns the rock in different uh, kinds of light and sees different things. Uh, it's giving him a real sense of agency that he can discover things in the world on his own. Mm-hmm. You're there to affirm what he's doing. Yep. So let's talk about something that really caught my attention. At one point, Dr. Yogman, you said, in times of stress, play is even more important. Can you talk about the value and Tell us a little bit about why play is so important in managing stress. Yes, it's uh, mostly because of the way it uh, enhances the relationship with parents. And we know that those relationships are critical to mitigating stress and promoting resilience. Um, so it's, it's uh, 
the way that play promotes safe, stable, and nurturing relationships through the mutual joy, the shared communication, and these uh, serve-and-return interactions that I just uh, mentioned really help children regulate the body's stress response and keep it at a, uh, at a manageable level. Okay, now sometimes parents will say to me, as a psychologist, they are too stressed, Dr. Yeoman, they're too stressed to think of anything, much less play with the children. So I was starting to think, actually, I think if they could enter into the play with the child, their stress would be reduced also. And certainly it wouldn't be an additive factor to their child's stress. I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, um, we really do think that uh, adults need to continue to play. And even reading uh, uh, the books from your own childhood to your child, bring back some of the joy of that uh, imagination of your uh, uh, reading of childhood books. The mm. uh, George Bernard Shaw has a wonderful quote about adult play. He says, we don't uh, stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. I love it. That's really great. I'm glad you mentioned the reading. And, you, and I think in the pediatric literature, there was a promotion of read with your child. And I would say with the folks I cross paths with, if they're doing nothing else, people are reading, especially at night with children. But I don't think there was enough attention, that's why I loved your article, to play even in addition to reading. Yes. And I think that they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So right. even in terms of uh, reading, rather than just didactically reading, one wants to pause and let the child extrapolate from the story that you're reading. And that's playful. Um, so how would you let do them, that? Let their imagination go with uh, the themes of the story and extrapolate and expand the story. That's playful. It's uh, very compatible with, uh, with reading and storytelling, but it's also a kind of imaginary play that you want to encourage in your child at the same time. Oh, yeah, I love it. So it would be like, what would you do if you woke up and there was a dragon in your room? Exactly. Or, or and, and even when you think about it, just like children like to play out sometimes what they've read or what they've seen, to play out the very story you read with them might be another way to expand the reading into imaginative or creative play. Absolutely. Even the, uh, the classic goodnight moon, children can look around their room and find objects to say goodnight to. Oh, yes. Great, great. Um, now, one of the things that people talk about they sometimes worry that their child does not want to play with anybody. Um, they want to just look at an electronic device. And uh, what would you say to that? Well, I think to the degree that, uh, uh, you know, electronic devices are pervasive right now in our culture. Um, and I think there's a way they can be used constructively, but that involves some interaction, interaction with peers, interaction with parents. For young children to just passively sit with an electronic device, uh, I think is uh, uh, 
is not really uh, in their best interest. I think one of the things that you mentioned that I liked is at the very least, it means they're not having more time playing. I, you certainly don't vilify electronic devices in this article, but when you, when you get the momentum of what you're tr- talking about in terms of the value of play, every minute that they could be playing uh, is, is time lost, so maybe there could be a bounce. We're going to take a break and, and talk more about play. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're fortunate that we're here with Dr. Yogman, Harvard pediatrician, who's the lead author on a new article in the pediatrics that talks about the power of play and even urges pediatricians to recommend play. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What defines your success? Is it success in your business? Success in your personal life? Is it more money? Is it meaningful relationships? How about your passion? Listen for Taking Care of Business with host David Wallach. David's guests share their challenges and what they did to overcome them. What if you can let your passion for success lead you to your success? Taking Care of Business is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Michael Yogman. He's a pediatrician associated with Harvard Medical School and the lead author of a new article that appeared in Pediatrics, which really underscored the power of play. Dr. Yogman, 
What about a situation like this? One of the types of play, and we're going to talk about the different types that you mentioned, is outdoor play and unstructured play. And an educator who heard you on NPR and um, told me about you mentioned that one of her concerns was that the major problems this preschool early education center, I think it goes up to third, has is in fact on the playground during recess. There's fighting, there's bullying, etc. If you were consulting with them, what would you suggest? Well, two major points. One is that um, kids need supervision. And obviously we're not going to tolerate bullying or, uh, uh, or hurtful play. Um, one of the things you want to encourage and that kids can learn through uh, physical play is how not to hurt each other, how to negotiate, how to win some and lose some. But there are broader issues here, and it has to do with uh, including in the curriculum in, in settings where they're not able to, uh, if you have a child who tends to engage in more uh, hurtful physical play, you want to develop a curriculum that involves facilitating social-emotional skills through play, which is a great way to learn those skills, but you wouldn't automatically want to put them out on the playground where they can either bully or hurt somebody. You'd want to do that in a, perhaps a, uh, an indoor situation where they might play uh, buddy games, taking turns in a circle, one being lips, one being ears so that they, uh, it's a wonderful little trick that some uh, preschool teachers have used to teach kids how to listen and take turns speaking. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of ways to develop these social-emotional skills through play experiences, uh, but obviously uh, when they're in a situation where somebody's at risk of being bullied or being hurt, you need adult supervision to prevent that. (laughs) It's really such a great answer, um, and I love the, what did you call it, lips and ears? Lips and ears, yeah. It's lips a, and uh, ears. a little game that the Tools of the Mind curriculum uses for uh, uh, helping kids to learn to respect each other's, uh, you know, conversations. Uh-huh, uh-huh, really great. Well, it, it the, point, the point that you make in the article is the importance of rough-and-tumble play. Let's just go there for a minute. In terms of teaching children how to let go and almost like little cubs in the animal kingdom, except to also discern what's dangerous, to be able to do the rough and tumble without risk. And that's a complaint that parents have. They often blame the dad. They'll say, women will say to me, "Um, it never fails that if I say to him, play with the kids, it becomes so rough and tumble that somebody gets hurt. Uh, so what would we say in that situation? Well, so I think that uh, one of our uh, studies years ago that's been, you know, well replicated is that uh, fathers are, you know, without overdoing the stereotype, fathers are more likely to be a child's play partner and they're more likely to engage in rough and tumble play. It's a very different style of play, perhaps, than uh, uh, most uh, mothers will engage in with their children. But um, there's a balance, and there's a complementarity, and I think, uh, you know, they can engage in that kind of play without anybody getting hurt. 
And there are things that kids learn through that kind of play. They learn more about uh, locomotor skills. They learn um, the, uh, the issue of how to take safe risks. Um, what they, uh, one of the things that uh, is happening right now is that people are so concerned and uh, in some ways I think overprotective that kids are uh, prevented from taking any risks and therefore prevented from learning coping skills. Mm. There are ways in which, uh, you know, physical play, uh, kids can learn to negotiate with each other. If you ever watched puppies play, they learn soft mouth. They learn how to uh, uh, mix it up without hurting each other. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what kids can learn from uh, rough and tumble play, either with each other uh, or with their parents. They can learn to cope, they can learn to negotiate, they can learn to win some and lose some, and, uh, um, but it is some important skills that they can learn through rough and tumble play. So if you were with a group Mothers, of little... I just might point out, yeah. uh, as opposed to being, you know, so critical that fathers might not be playing with their children the same way they play with their children, you know, need to realize that there's a value in different experiences that children have with, uh, with the two parents. There's a complementarity, there's a balance, and in fact, uh, there's some data that uh, uh, fathers who are less likely to interpolate um, some garbled language in young children are more likely to have kids that are, uh, uh, have enhanced language skills. So there really is a, a balance here. Um, just could you explain what you just said about fathers who, did you say, interpret the garbled language? Well, so that um, fathers are less likely sometimes to understand some of the articulation errors that children make when they're learning language at a young age. Okay. Uh-huh. And they will, uh, you know, essentially challenge the kids to, uh, uh, to speak more clearly. And in yes. fact, some longitudinal data suggests that uh, language development uh, is enhanced when fathers are more involved with young children. Uh, I agree. And I think this personality, I don't want to turn it into a whole gender difference either, but having raised boys, but having come from a family of girls, I would say, thank God, my husband would push the risk-taking, which would make me always the one saying, do you think you really all should climb that rock? They're great. They can do it. And in fact, over and over again, they could. So I often think of the undue caution and restriction I would have placed on them. Um, I, I I think, though, that could be either gender with a parent who's oh, a much absolutely. more, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's it's a good thing to think about the over-involvement uh, at the cost of having the child learn the risk themselves. Um, in terms of guided play, you use that term a lot. I wondered if yeah. we could explain what that really means, because it seems very valuable, but I don't know that I would have known what it meant. So the distinction... Uh, here's an easy way to think about it. One can talk about free play. One can talk about guided play or playful learning. So that free play is really just the child is, you know, free to do whatever they would like. But guided play or playful learning 
means that the adult may uh, have a, uh, uh, a goal and may initiate uh, some introduction, but lets the child direct the play. So let me give you uh, some examples. The... Uh, because uh, there's a lot of work now going on in some urban environments to uh, to turn uh, supermarkets, for example. Uh, so one is shopping with a child in a shopping cart, and one comes to the apple counter, and there are some numbers on the apples. <laughs> that is an example of guided play or playful learning, because the child in the shopping cart, rather than just being bored that parents can play a game counting the apples. Nice. Um, they're now doing some things in uh, neighborhood playgrounds, uh, creating uh, puzzles on the walls, creating uh, lights at bus stops that shine uh, configurations on the ground that the child can do hopscotch. Uh, all kinds of opportunities that... Uh, are not, you know, are a little different than free play. The adult who designs it has a goal in mind, but then the child is free to run with it, if you will. It's great. It's great, particularly when you think of how busy parents are, and this is a way of incorporating what they are doing with play with their child. Exactly. Yeah, it's terrific. So guided play the way I thought of it, but I'm loving what you're talking about in terms of new innovation, is if you set up some things in a room where you set up all kinds of arts and crafts material and you might be there, um, but the child is actually choosing to do what they want and play with or draw something that they want. Exactly, and you're not being overly intrusive about it. That's the, uh, the critical distinction. You're not interrupting it and making them go to one thing versus another. You're letting them take the lead. Right. Now, one of the things that I I guess I want to point out when I I wrote in a blog is that in this world of cell phones, if the child's in a room and you set up all different things, but while the child's looking and touching and opening pens, you're on a cell phone, I think something's lost. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Kids really notice. And uh, uh, children can be quite frustrated when they want their parents' attention and the parent is busy, you know, uh, around the corner texting or talking on their cell phone. So I think one needs to be respectful that uh, kids notice. And, uh, and they like to... They like to be noticed playing, and they like parents to pay attention to what they're playing with. So this is where the importance of play, and you're underscoring it, seems to me to be so crucial. Because if I'm a young parent and I'm busy and I I get a chance to look at my phone while the children are playing with some material I set out, if I only knew that my noticing what they're drawing and saying, it looks like the castle in the movie, or it looks a little bit like that rock we saw when we were walking. That that is really enormous in terms of that child's not only social skills, but even memory, cognition, 
I don't think we would, perhaps we don't know or didn't know enough of how much this kind of play matters in high school in the end. I, I think that the uh, other thing to realize is the kinds of skills that children learn through play uh, are somewhat uh, unique and different. Um, so they'll learn about uh, uh, staying on task. They'll learn about self-regulation. They'll learn about problem solving. They'll learn about resolving disputes with words. Uh, there are all kinds of skills that really translate later in life to, I think, the, uh, the skills that uh, an economically competitive workforce wants. And that has to do with creativity, innovation, collaboration. Those are as important as, uh, uh, you know, as the more traditional academic uh, skills for success in our, in our more complex world. Mm. Now, one of the things that I saw that you listed under adult-guided um, playing were board games. Surely. So yeah. that for, for older children, that kind of negotiation and uh, uh, task persistence, attention to rules, there are all kinds of things that adolescents can learn through board games. I think because... And they're doing it in, you know, with other people, so they're learning the social skills as opposed to just playing a game on an iPad or an iPhone where it's solitary and they're relying on somebody else's creativity rather than their own. So I just heard the story from a grandmother whose uh, grandsons are unbelievable on the on the computer and video games but when she comes over and takes out monopoly they are right there and they love it so much that when they couldn't stop they all wrote down where they were so they could continue and i thought well that's that's a good invitation for all of us to remember that those board games really were golden in some way. And we really ought to bring them out because they offer so much to the children as well as the parent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So if you were to say, if someone had an eight-year-old and said, I I don't know, I've been so busy, Uh, there's a babysitter, my wife does most of it, I don't even know where to start. I'm not an athletic type guy. Where do I even start in terms of playing with my eight-year-old daughter? Well, I would start by uh, watching what she likes to tinker with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think you want to let her kind of lead you, whether it's reading a book together, whether it's uh, uh some kind of imaginary play, dress up, uh, whether it's uh, uh, for an older child, it can be a board game. For a uh, younger child, it can be uh, Simon Says, for example, is a good way of, uh, it's a neat game because it helps kids learn about inhibition Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. when they can do something and when they can't. Okay. Well, we're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We've been lucky enough to have with us Dr. Michael Yogman. He's a pediatrician and the lead author of a new study in pediatrics that talks about the power of play and even urges pediatricians to prescribe play. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Success doesn't come by chance. It's a decision to take a chance on you. Attending the University of Choice is a goal, but not a guarantee. Dr. Cynthia Colon offers you the formula of going from good, better, to best, and increasing those chances of receiving that yes to your dream university. Get the one-to-one attention every student needs to succeed. Tune in to Destination University, live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human, with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Yogman. He's the lead author of the new article in pediatrics, The Power of Play. Dr. Yogman, what were the concerns that prompted you to gather the research and make this recommendation to pediatricians about the power of play? Well, there were two things. One is I uh, spent uh, a number of years as the board chair of the Boston Children's Museum watching the joy of uh, children uh, tinkering, playing, uh, hands-on learning in a museum, and watch the joy on their parents' faces as they could see that little uh, scientific mind exploring things in a museum, whether it be uh, bubbles, making bubbles, whether it be uh, putting ping-pong balls or golf balls down inclines, whether it be uh, 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 just... Uh, simple things. Now, uh, one can, I think the converse, however, was my concern about um, the overstructuring of kids' time that I would hear about in my office all the time. The fact that uh, from a very young age, uh, children were being shuttled from one activity to another. 
they were uh, often being tutored at young ages to be prepared to take uh, these standardized tests, worrying at young ages about academic success, and preschool curriculum starting to uh, move uh, both kindergarten and below, eliminating recess and uh, prepping kids for test-taking. And I began to think about the fact that the increased incidence of anxiety and depression in middle school and high school kids and certainly in college kids where mental health concerns are now skyrocketing may not be unrelated to some of the pressures we're putting on young children instead of giving them the opportunity to find their own way through play. So I think all of that led me to uh, make a value statement to uh, pediatricians and to parents that, uh, you know, think about finding some time to play, both for your own mental health and for your children's development. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure that the fact that by the time so many children get to college, Dr. Yogman, they've had it. They're burnt out and they didn't even start yet because they have been through the pressure, as you say, to somehow score academically, to score in these tests, and to get to the perfect college. And so the value of play and how much it actually helps learning as well as reduce stress seems to be so important. I think we overlook, and you say it over and over again in, in this, how many, how important it is for stress regulation. It's funny, in dealing with adults who've dealt with trauma, part of the symptom is they no longer can play. Realities become too real, and you don't get that spontaneity to want to play. So I think it really is important what you're saying. Have you actually had an impact on some of the preschools in any way changing the curriculum or putting recess back? Well, I certainly have been advocating for that. It may be too soon to know how much of an impact, but uh, I hope that we uh, we will. I did get a call from a uh, preschool teacher who uh, um, was very upset when the director suggested that she get rid of the blocks. And I said, oh, no, you want to tell that director that those blocks are critical for the children to play with. Mm, mm, oh, my goodness. Let's go from that to something else you said you researched, which is fathers in play. Um, I was curious, and I think our listeners will be, what prompted you to research fathers in play, and what did you find? Well, we actually began looking at uh, uh, at face-to-face interactions of uh, fathers and mothers many, many years ago. Uh, and looked at the rhythms of their interaction, even looked at the uh, physiology of heart rate synchrony, um, and uh, showed that, um, you know, without overplaying stereotypes, that fathers were more likely to engage in more physically arousing interactions with their uh, children. The, the child would have this cooing back and forth with the mother and have these big belly laughs with the father. Mm. And one began to then follow that along and look at the kinds of uh, play that uh, the different parents would have with their kids as they uh, became toddlers. And it was this more likely to be this kind of rough and tumble play with fathers. Now, there's a, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to overplay the stereotype. The uh, uh, There's obviously a lot of uh, stereotyping that goes on, but 
you know, there may be some uh, some subtle differences in the way uh, men and women have been socialized and, and play with young children. There is an incredibly uh, interesting Mayan Indian clip uh, uh, proverb that suggests that uh, mothers uh, hold the baby close to protect the baby from the world, and fathers take the baby to the highest mountaintop to show the baby that, or uh, the boy or girl that the world is theirs. And I think this notion that uh, this balance between security and exploration and independence um, may get played out in different ways in different families, but that there is a need for both developmental lines and trajectories to evolve, and that the two parents may divide those up in varying ways, but there's a need for both. And so I think both parents need to respect uh, each other's differences and complementarity in how they're interacting and playing with their kids. So what would you say, given the need for both of those focuses, we have so many single parents, Dr. Yogman, who are working and, and trying to raise children yeah. at the same time. How, well, what, so, what, what can we uh, suggest? Obviously, it's stressful, but single parents can be very successful at doing both, at playing both roles, both that mm-hmm. uh, protective role and that more uh, arousing, rough-and-tumble play role. I think the issue uh, also that we should mention has to do with uh, uh, the economics, the lack of equity, and the, uh, the struggles that, uh, where those issues are compounded for single parents. So oftentimes um, we talk about the importance of outdoor play, but parents need safe playgrounds. And so many parents are now concerned that uh, it's not even safe to go outside in your neighborhood. I also want to emphasize that nothing that we're saying about play involves going out and purchasing expensive toys. Wooden spoons, leftover dishes, the most simple objects are ripe for children to explore and discover textures and, uh, uh, and other dimensions so one doesn't have to go out and purchase expensive toys. That's great. That's true. It's sometimes um, children will go to a grandparent's house or go somewhere where that's just exactly what's around, old pots and pans and all kinds of things that are just And they intriguing. love it. Yes, yes, they do. As for, and for make-believe and dress-up, you don't have to buy anything. <laughs> there's, there's usually plenty of things around. But so kids will put a sheet over a table and create a fort or take uh, cardboard right. boxes and create a fort. Right, right. So if I'm a single mom and I'm going to try to do my best, what are the kinds of things I can say to my babysitter that might pick up on the message we're sending today that, so that that babysitter has some idea of the importance of play and what she or he could do? Well, I think making blocks around, uh, you know, having those kinds of, uh, of wooden spoons and Tupperware and, uh, and blocks um, and again, it's a value statement to the babysitter um, that uh, not turning on the TV, not, uh, you know, playing with your iPhone, but, you know, watching your child uh, and uh, uh, encouraging that kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. Because I think if, if people pass on the message to the people who are dealing with their children, we even expand the notion of the importance, um, much as parents should be very concerned about taking blocks away 
or ending the recess or free play time. Exactly. And parents need to be advocates with schools for the importance of recess, for uh, the importance of, uh, of giving children the opportunity to, uh, uh, to have some creative playtime in every day. Now- now, a quick side question is, so this is the, the um, generation of play dates. Children go to other houses to play when they're not involved in some activity. And sometimes a parent will say, my child is really not interested in play dates. He doesn't really want to go anywhere. He just wants to play by himself at home. What would you say as the pediatrician to that? Well, it's a balance. I mean, children have different temperaments, and one would want to look below the surface and find out if there's something about, uh, is there something concerning about uh, the child's social skills, that they want to be isolated and be alone. One wants to find out what's happening in uh, either in preschool or in other settings. Is uh, Are they just tired at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a host of reasons one would want to, look below the surface and figure out what's going on. Mm. I like the fact that you also mentioned temperament because there are children who just love being with people and then there are other children who can't wait to come home and just privately play with their own little characters or their own Legos and that's what they've been waiting to do. So I think it's worth us helping people realize how different their own children might be in terms of temperament and how they want to play. Exactly. Yep. Couldn't agree more. So in terms of take-home message, let me first ask you, what's the most common question that other pediatricians have asked you in terms of the recommendation for play or the, the importance of play? I've actually been pleasantly surprised. I think most pediatricians have really welcomed this report. Uh, partly because it's not asking them to uh, uh, to add another ten minutes to their well visit. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, you know, it's a very basic premise that I think in our heart of hearts, pediatricians like to play with kids, and to encourage parents to do that is a very uh, uh, comfortable message. So they are sending the message across the board, basically, to parents that they see that much as we wanted you to step out and read, don't forget to step up and play. Exactly. You can reach out and read, and you can reach out and play, and you can combine the two. Okay. And I think Um, pediatricians can also be advocates. I think the other take-home message is they can be advocates as increasingly people are developing uh, universal pre-kindergarten and preschools to not just take the uh, uh, the drill and kill curriculum of uh, of first, second, and third grade and move it down to younger kids. That's not the way to go. What we want to do with younger kids is really encourage those social emotional skills and uh, and executive function skills that are really uh, cultivated through play. And an example of an executive function skill would be what? So. Uh, cognitive flexibility, task persistence, um, um, that kind of uh, joint problem solving, all of those are, uh, are the kind of executive function skills, the how we learn, not the what we learn. 
uh, the how we learn, the being able to stay focused, to be able to share with the other children, to be able to be flexible and put one task down and pick up another. For sure, you're right when you think about just adding third grade curriculum to a first grader doesn't do any of that. So I'm so glad you just described that. Now, where I had read that on the uh, on the web page, uh, Harvard's uh, University's resource web page, there's a Center for Developing Child. Is that a resource site for all listeners, or are there any others that you want to suggest? No, that would be a good resource site, and the uh, the paper actually also has a uh, table from a group called Pathways. That uh, pathways.org that gives a uh, a number of uh, of activities that people can uh, can use, and there's a, uh, a curriculum called Tools of the Mind that's based on the Emilio Reggio uh, preschool work in Italy. So those are three different sources that I think would be uh, helpful to your readers. How could a listener directly find your paper, Dr. Yogman? Uh, if you just uh, it's in the public domain, so if they uh, probably Google the power of play or my name, they will probably find it. It's okay. available uh, through, uh, I think, just on the uh, on Google. Okay, sounds really good. I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live. It's been a wonderful show, and you've really allowed us to see the value of play and the importance of sitting down and enjoying your children and playing with them right across the age range. So thank you again. Your children must be very fortunate to have you. Well, thank you very much. I, I hope so. Okay. I Glad you're thank, talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay. I want to thank Bye my now. listeners. You can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, and on the podcast app of your iPhone, iTunes, on The Voice America. Remember, by 6 p.m. this evening, this will be a podcast. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care, play more, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.